Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Lori Eltharps. She's a journalist and author whose work lands at the intersection of race and popular culture. She is the author of three critically acclaimed nonfiction books that deal with race, culture, and identity. Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, Kinky Gaspacho, Life, Love, and Spain, and her most recent, Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. Lori is also the author of the novel, Substitute Me. A former associate professor of journalism at Temple University, Lori has won awards and accolades for her teaching in both academic and creative workshop settings. In addition to teaching at Temple, Tharps has also taught at numerous writing festivals and writing centers across the United States, including Blue Stoop Philly and Gotham Writers Workshop. In addition to her books, Lori's work can be read in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Essence, Glamour, and Entertainment Weekly magazines. Originally from Wisconsin, Lori now makes her home in the south of Spain. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm so happy that you're here, and I think you're in Spain right now, right? That is correct. I am. Yeah, when I was reading Kinky Gazpacho, I thought, is she going to end up there? What is happening? I really enjoyed your book. It was so, you know, it's like talking to you. I felt it was so conversational. Thank you so much. I think that's my my style. And in nonfiction, that works very well. I am now challenging myself to write another novel. And it, it's actually hard to stop writing so conversationally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you could write a conversational novel, but maybe you're trying like a whole new thing. I am. And then I'm like, why am I torturing myself like this? Go back to that <laughs> conversational tone and just, you know, right. write what comes easy to you. So Yeah, my father always likes to say that, well, this is like in terms of career that people are always think that the thing that they're good at is not the thing they should do. They think they should do the thing that's like a little bit harder for them. But when in fact, you can make like your life so much easier by doing the thing you're really good at. I agree with your dad. <laughs> I agree with your father. <laughs> so could you share a bit about Kinky Gazpacho for readers who haven't gotten to it yet? Absolutely. Basically, Kinky Gazpacho um, originated as almost like a love letter to my children. And that's ironic because I, you know, had a baby who was three months old when I had that idea. But I really mm -hmm. thought as a black woman married to a Spanish man, who had had like a challenging experience as a black person in Spain, I thought I have to figure out how to make the black and Spanish experience make sense to my children. Um, I have three children now, but I, I mean, I had a, intended to have more than one, but regardless, even if it was just one child, I really wanted to somehow figure out how to like tell our story to make it fit together for, you know, for our children. And, it didn't start out as a memoir. It was actually going to be like short stories or, you know, maybe interviewing black people who had lived in Spain. Like, I don't even know what I was thinking. I just actually mm -hmm. had the title before I had anything else. Like I sat up one day and was like, I'm going to write a book called Kinky Gazpacho one day. Like I, it just, it's perfect mm -hmm. because my first book was called Hair Story. And I had been writing a lot about the significance of black hair and black hair culture. So anyway, all that to say, it actually took me a bit of time to really put together the fact that I wanted to write a memoir, that my experience as a black person in Spain and getting to the place where Spain played such a significant role in my own identity formation as a black person would be a really good way to, to tell this story to then kind of give to my children. And because, you know, originally I was thinking, oh, well, I married a Spaniard, so, you know, the story starts there. But really, when I pulled like back of all the layers of my life, going back to fifth grade, when I started studying Spanish, I always said and thought and wrote about in my diaries and things that Spain was going to play a significant role in my life. And so mm. when I started, you know, I, I teach memoir and, you know, I always tell people, you know, figure out the theme of your story and then go back and see what are the kind of plot points from your own life that that speak to that theme. And there were so many plot points about Spain for me in my life mm -hmm. that the the memoir, you know, really did become that that story of, you know, an identity, a coming of age story 
where Spain was always kind of in, was my North Star, if you will. So it was always kind of going towards Spain. And the, the last chapters where I discover that Spain actually has a, a, a hidden black history, a history of African slavery um, and African people living in Spain post-slavery in the like 17th and 18th centuries was almost just like a surprise ending for me mm-hmm. as I was exploring this kind of connection between blackness and Spain. That's what the book is. It's my story with an ending of discovering the secret black history in Spain. Yes. And you know, I really love hearing about your process. And and by the way, before I go to my next question, how long would you say it took you? Uh, I know it's hard to kind of like figure this out exactly, but how long did it take you from inception and, you know, writing the memoir in, initially to finding this connectivity with Spain and then really, really seeing how much it played a part in your story? Yeah, it, it really did. I say that it took me seven years, but it really wasn't seven years of actual writing. But mm-hmm. when thinking, you know, what am I writing? What is this book about? How, how is it going to come together? You know, that was a probably a three-year process because, like mm-hmm. I said, it went through many different iterations. But once I realized I was writing a memoir, then it was just like boom, 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 boom. I could write it pretty quickly. I'm thinking of the actual time. It came out in 2008, and my first book came out in 2001. So, yeah, there was a seven-year oh, yeah. period of difference between, you know, the first book and the second book. But, like I said probably the majority of that time was just conceptualizing what Kinky Gazpacho was going to be. Once I figured it out, then it was pretty easy and pretty quick of a process. And in between there, like I actually did do the research on Spain's hidden black history for a magazine article. Yeah. And you then, mentioned that. yeah, so that's what you know, brought it all together, like this could be a book. I love to talk about this with my guests because I think for me too, trying to figure out when I was writing my memoir, it doesn't just, you know, pop into your head necessarily as a writer, as a memoirist, oh, this is what it's about and this is what I have to include. This is really the focal point of my memoir. I mean, it sounds kind of funny, right? Like, well, it's our story. It's a section of time that we want to cover. So obviously we should know what's in there and what we're focusing on. But it's not like that. I mean, there are really ways that you have to call and cut out and kind of hyper-focus on the things that will make your story really shine. Absolutely. And that's what I always teach my students is that this idea that we all have multiple memoirs within us. So mm-hmm. the idea that you could just sit down and write your life story is, is you know, that's a fallacy. Um, but it also, you know, should give you some comfort if it's not all coming together, like you said, in one big, like, download from your brain. <laughs> because we're multifaceted human beings and there's multiple stories we could tell. And I always look to Maya Angelou, who has, I think, nine memoirs, right? Um, One life, one life, nine (laughs) memoirs, because she pulled apart, like she has her traveling memoir, she has her, you know, childhood, she has, you know, her relationship one, there's, I mean, I think she could have stopped after five, I mean, I'm not criticizing Maya Angelou, (laughs) she's like my favorite memoirist ever, but she pulled all these different pieces of her life and came up with nine different books, right? It's Mm. all one human. But these are the themes, the different themes that she had to talk about. So, yeah, it takes a moment to figure out what the theme is for the story you want to tell. This makes me wonder about your students. Do you ever have students who you you share this with them and you've worked with them for a bit and they really just can't figure out how to organize their story or what the thread is? You're laughing. (laughs) I mean, yes. I actually just (laughs) taught a great lovely memoir workshop with just five women in there and they you know they came to the class because I was teaching them how to actually structure their memoir like they already they came to the class with the idea and what I was helping them do was to actually put it you know like an outline down on paper so they could get to writing and there were you know there was one woman in particular who came with this idea but Every time she would talk about what she wanted to write about, I'm like, that's not what you're saying this story is. You're saying this story mm-hmm. is X, but every time you talk about it, it's Y. And the, the like flat points that you keep talking about are Y. Why do you keep wrapping it up with this kind of X theme? And it was because she was wedded to that idea. Like, oh, I'm going to write a story about travel and X and Y. And I'm like, but your story is about family. It's about mm-hmm. you and your identity. You know, it was it was mm-hmm. a you know it was a much deeper story. 
Um, but absolutely, I think it's very hard for people, one, because they may want to say like, oh, I'm going to write a memoir about, you know, let's say uh, getting uh, um, recovery from a dependency, right? Maybe it's mm-hmm. my getting clean, my sobriety memoir, whatever. But when you really dig into it, it's like, that's not the story. The story is actually, again, maybe it's a relationship with your mother's story. That's what mm-hmm. you're really talking about. And, and that, I think, is challenging. And it's, you know, it's hard for anybody. It's almost like asking somebody to be their own therapist. What's the problem? Mm. You know, like, yeah. what, what are your pain points? Do you understand why you feel this way? You know, memoir can be very therapeutic because you are going to unravel, you know, these, like, uh, breadcrumbs that have been trying to show you something or leading you somewhere in your life. And you have to kind of go backwards and piece them together. So I do think that is probably one of the biggest challenges, writing memoir, is figuring out, what the theme you're going to write about for this one book. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's so helpful to have trusted readers and memoir teachers because you often can't do it alone when you've been staring at the same material and really thinking about the same life for so long. Exactly. I agree 100%. My agent was that person for me at the time with Kinsey Gazpacho. She kept being like, I don't think you're there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what I'm writing is a motherhood memoir. She's like, Ed, no, you're not. Try again. <laughs> oh my gosh, how stunning. I mean, really, that's so important, right? Like, so important to have that person to help you yeah. that way. After, and I'm I mean, sure you got frustrated. Oh, I did. I would be like, I got it. You know, and I'd write this great <laughs> proposal and I'd really think I'd hit on something. And God bless my agent. She was, she'd been around the block many times and she was just like, no, no, no. And I, because I trusted her so much, it was, it was, painful but when I hit on what I was doing and she said yes I knew I was right like I knew I hit it mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. it, it it does help to have that outside person whether it's a teacher an agent an editor somebody who knows what they're doing not your friend yeah <laughs> not yeah, your friend yeah, yeah but, so you um, need the perspective and the experience and someone a little more neutral so can you talk about when you knew you would make writing your career and what early experiences helped you believe in yourself and keep going? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I always tell this story. I start with the time that my mother gave me a Remington, an antique Remington typewriter when I was like eight years old. She found it at a rummage sale. I'm from Wisconsin. We say rummage sale. I know some people depending <laughs> where you're from, it's a yard sale or a... I, I think of like garage sale actually because I'm from sale, yeah. Queens, you know. Anyway, she brought me this big antique typewriter. Before that time, I don't ever recall ever saying anything like, I want to be a writer. I want a typewriter. I, I, I like to write stories. And yet she bought that for me. I have an older sister. She didn't give it to my sister. She gave it to me. Mm-hmm. And from the moment I got that typewriter, I was hooked on writing. Um, mm-hmm. And I like to write everything. Like I wrote stories. I wrote plays. I wrote menus for dinner. (laughs) I wrote business cards for myself. I wrote playbills for the stories that I wrote. Um, I was just infatuated by the fact that I could take something that came out of my head and then pound these keys and then it was on paper. And from that moment on, I called myself a writer. And, you know, I wrote in the high school newspaper. I wrote in college, actually, I thought I was going to major in English and be a novelist. Like, that was my thing. I'm going to write the great American novel. It didn't seem like a job or a career. It just was like, I'm going to write novels. I, again, I've always told this story saying I took my first creative writing class in college. I got a C and I gave up on my dreams because I thought Hmm. that C meant I wasn't talented enough. Turns out, just recently when I moved to Spade and had to clean out all of my stuff I did not get a C I got a oh. B it was a oh. B so I don't like I've clearly the narrative in my life was like that was just this terrible moment but it was just a B but for whatever reason I took that as I'm not good enough to be a writer so I majored in education but when I went to Spain for my junior year of college which is in Kiki Gazpacho which is why again Spain is so important to me I mean, there's all these touch points that you know, were very pivotal in my life experiences. But while I was in Spain, I, um, I, I found myself during all those siestas times where you just, everything shuts down in the country and you really have to do nothing. I mean, you have mm-hmm. to, it's an art of doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got 
comfortable with myself and really got to know myself better. And one of the things I realized is that I really loved writing. I was writing love songs in Spanish when I was there. Like I was always writing. And I met so many wonderful people while I was in Spain and traveling that, that year who were following their passions and following their dreams without apology. And I felt like as an American, we were so taught to like follow the right path and get a good job and do this and do that. There were so much, there were so many requirements that had nothing to do with passion. And so that, um, at the end of that year, my junior year of college, I made a pledge to myself while I was still in Spain that I was going to do whatever it took to be a writer. I was going to do it for myself because I loved it and I was going to try doing it. So um, there were some starts and stops, not really stops. I just, um, I spent two years after college working in public relations, which was writing adjacent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I, again, rekindled that promise to myself. I went to journalism school. I got a master's in journalism and putting myself in debt to study journalism kind of mm -hmm. made me say, you're going to be a writer. Like, this is it. You're putting it all in. You're doing it for yourself. And I never looked back. I was 27 when I graduated from journalism school and mm -hmm. I just never stopped writing since then. Even when people were like, well, you're not going to be able to live in New York and make a living until you're much more advanced in your career. I was like, nope, I'm doing it. I'm here. Like, I'm doing this. Hmm. And I had a job working at Vibe Magazine before I graduated. And from there, I went to Entertainment Weekly Magazine and had a great career as an entertainment journalist. And journalist felt like writer with a job to me, like writer yeah. with a salary. And along the way, I started writing my books because I was doing entertainment journalism and I did have a deep need to make sure that the work I was putting out in the world was helping to make the world a better place. And I didn't feel like entertainment journalism did that. And so I started writing my books and all of my books are about race and identity. And, you know, they're put out in the world to try to improve this, our society in ways that we really need to tackle, mostly getting rid of white supremacy and making a more just and equal society for people of all different races and identities. So, mm -hmm. so that was kind of my path. And I think it's because I promised myself at such an early age and because I love writing so much that the idea of doing anything else, like those two years when I worked in PR were so torturous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were so mm -hmm. torturous. Like I could not find the purpose in getting up out of bed to go write press releases for candy bars. I was working mm -hmm. for Eminem Mars and I was writing press releases about Eminems and Snickers mm -hmm. and, and gaining weight and getting cavities because I was eating candy all day. <laughs> um, yeah. So for me, it's been like, I can't see myself doing anything else. And even though there are like ebbs and flows in my career and there's different variations of what my writing looks like, I'm just committed to it. And I'm kind of one of those people where if you say you can't do it, I want to do it anyway, even harder. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I do, there were different times in my life where particularly when I started having children, I remember being on the playground in New York City with my kids, my kid at the time, and I was pregnant mm -hmm. with my second child. And everybody was saying like, oh yeah, I was a writer too until I had my child. It's impossible. You can't mm -hmm. do both things. I was like, oh, watch. <laughs> yeah. Watch. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's just that's just like the determination in me. Which you've always had. I have. And I was about to say, like, I was recently asked, like, what's one word that describes you? And it took me a while, but I was like, tenacious. Mm. I've been tenacious mm -hmm. since I, uh, maybe like since I was 10. I won't say, as a child, I was kind of quiet and like nobody paid attention to me. But I think once I came into my own, tenacious mm -hmm. has been the word that describes me. And that's just how I approach everything in my life that really matters to me. Mm hmm. Do you think is there anything you think newer writers that you see coming up now might misunderstand about having a writing career? Yes, absolutely. Well, I don't want to say that just because they're newer. I think you could be an older writer and also yes, have yes, the yes. same idea. But um, the idea of having a writing life, it probably isn't going to look like, oh, I write novels all day. Um, it, a writing life is cobbled together with you know, things that are going to make you money and then things that, you know, feed your passion. And I think that when you keep an open mind as to, you know, how you can fill the spaces, it's almost like a puzzle piece. You know, you have to take like maybe 
30% in the beginning is allowed for your passionate writing and the other 70% has to be, you know, aimed at something else. And I don't mean that 70% has to be like, you know, waiting tables or being an accountant for your dad. It could be, you know, blogging or writing like ghostwriting, which is something I've started doing recently. I've, I've, um, I'm now doing uh, ghostwriting for, you know, books for, let's say, public figures, not necessarily mm -hmm. celebrities, but public figures. And that's actually a very lucrative way to make or have a writing life. Mm -hmm. But then you have, it's the challenge of doing, you know, balancing that with the books that you want to write for yourself. But I would have, you know, before that, I was doing journalism and fiction or creative writing or teaching and creative writing. So I think what, like, rather than get discouraged because you can't, quote unquote, make a living just writing your passions, there's a lot of things that you can do that you're, you know, I always thought journalism writing was very helpful to me to do storytelling or writing on deadline. Like I could, I wrote my novel really quickly because I knew how to write fast. Um, there's all these skills that you can learn. Maybe if you're doing blogging or writing uh, press releases or whatever it might be, that same work, that same writing work can help with the creative writing work that you really want to do or that, again, feeds your soul and feeds you. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, that, that writing the memoir used different skills for you than the three nonfiction books or rather the other two nonfiction books? Was it a very different process for you? Aside from the time lapse, you know, into figuring out what your story was really about, was it harder for you to write the memoir or was it like more relaxing to write the memoir? Can you identify that at all? Yeah. At the time, it was um, very scary for me because up until that time, I had only written, you know, journalism and straight nonfiction. My first book was a cultural history hair story. It was cultural history of black hair in America. And I wrote it with another journalist. So I wasn't doing it by myself. And it was, you know, I looked at it. We looked at every chapter. It's like a long article. <laughs> so it <laughs> yeah. seemed manageable. And I knew that memoir was that bridge between fiction and nonfiction. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to pull it off. And I've always loved memoir so much. So it was like I was dipping my toe into this genre that, that was my favorite genre. And so I was very nervous about it. I didn't know if I could pull it off. But today, if you ask me, I would think like memoir is my favorite thing to write. And it doesn't feel difficult for me to go from... Um, nonfiction to memoir, even to fiction, but that's because my fiction is still in process. Is still in process, I would say. But memoir, I think, is my comfortable spot. It's my sweet mm -hmm. spot, and I like that it can, you know, I can take my interest and my abilities as a journalist, but kind of soften them and make them a little more literary, a little more fun, a little mm. looser with my details and descriptions you know I could go on a little longer than I could in an article so for me now memoir is not harder but the first time I did it it absolutely was intimidating and in your memoir you share what being one of the only black kids in your school was like and how as you grew and, and changed grades and got older your relationship to being black in those environments changed a bit and it shifted in high school college and then of course in Spain when you went to study there but it does feel like you were very aware of this feeling of being other. And I'm wondering how strong that feeling is for you now. Yeah, it's funny because 10 years after the book Kinky Gaspacho came out, I went back to Spain for the first time in 10 years and did a like a update on what was it like to be black in Spain 10 years later. And I did it as a podcast, like an audio, I called it an mm -hmm. audio memoir. And so it was really striking because I had sort of been staying away from Spain because it had been uncomfortable for me to go and be stared at or to, to feel like I was in a space where blackness was not appreciated. I've never thought I was, I never felt like my life was in danger or that people were like, like racist, like the way they are in the United States. I just felt uncomfortable because I always felt like there were so few black people and the stereotypes about black people in Spain seem to be so like caricatures and, mm -hmm. and stupid and uninformed. So 10 years later, I was like, I didn't have those feelings at all. And I was like, has Spain changed or have I changed? <laughs> and I think it's a bit of both actually. To be fair, I think Spain has 
um, definitely, I mean, there's no reason that Spain should be so, um, for lack of a better word, politically correct when they don't have as diverse as a society as the United States. That's silly mm -hmm. to expect them to be at the same place. And yet there should be some expectations that they're not as behind as they were, let's say, in the 90s and the early 2000s. I don't know if people remember, like, the Spanish Olympic basketball team got into a lot of trouble because they took pictures of themselves, like, making their eyes look like Asian eyes and, like, because oh, they were wow. making fun of, a, I think, an Asian basketball. No, because they were in China. I'm not even sure what it was, but it was so offensive. And they still were like, what's the big deal? It was just a joke, you know. That's mm. the kind of lack of awareness around cultural mm. differences and racial differences that I had been dealing with. So all that to say, by the time I came back in 2019, which was, again, almost 10 years, it was almost, it was 10 years to the day of when the paperback version of Fiji Despacho came out. I had such a positive experience here. And I think, like I said, Spain itself as a culture, as a country, has definitely diversified. They've gotten a lot more culturally sensitive and aware. There were actually a lot of academics and writers and filmmakers who actually were digging into Spain's black history that I had talked about in my, in my mm -hmm. book. And so there was a lot more awareness. But personally, I just feel like at, a, at the ripe age of, I guess I was like 47 or 48 at the time, I'm just so much more comfortable with who I am. And I realized that when I was in my 20s and in Spain, and even in my 30s, I think I was still looking for validation for from the mm -hmm. outside world as opposed to feeling 100% comfortable with who I am. And at this mm -hmm. point in my life, I feel like I could go anywhere, and it doesn't bother me what people think. Like, mm -hmm. who cares? But I couldn't say that in my 20s. I really couldn't. I really did care what other people thought. And so now I think because of all of the writing I've done around race and identity and all the wonderful people I've talked to and learned from, I'm just so happy that I am a black American woman. I'm happy with who I am. I like everything about myself. I'm proud and excited about, you know, uh, black, like the history of my people, if you will. And so I, I, I can't be anything but proud of who I am and, just feel comfortable wherever I go. Um, and, and so I do think it's me who has matured. And, and I, I, I am grateful that I am because I think I'm raising my children now to be far more comfortable with who they are, not just as black people, but as black mixed people with black and Spanish. But I, I really did want my children to, to, to bypass that discomfort that I felt growing up because I was in such white spaces. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I almost feel terrible asking you to read that excerpt we talked about because <laughs> now we're going to like regress to the time when it was not like that. Do you feel like you could just introduce, sort of set us up because a lot of people won't know like what's happening and where we are Absolutely. and then read that? Yeah. So this little segment that I'm reading is from the book where um, it's, it's a time when I am actually visiting the south of Spain with my husband and we're going to Carnival for the first time in the South where he's from. And up until now, he's been so excited for me to experience Carnival because it's really, uh, it's like Mardi Gras in the South of Spain. So it's that time right before Lent where you're going to be fasting or being really observant of the 40 days before Easter. And so during that time in the South of Spain, people dress up. You know, again, it's like, it's like Mardi Gras, but people wear costumes. Um, and singing and dancing in the streets. So what happened in this little segment is that I am a, I am approached by a woman in blackface who's dressed like, you know, uh, like a cave woman basically, but she's in blackface, and um, I get a little bit upset by the experience <laughs> because this is not the first time that you know I see like people in blackface in Spain. So this is this is this experience, and I think I must be in my early twenties during this time. Thank you. Hello, my sister. A woman, possibly drunk, said to me in heavily accented English as Manuel and I muscled our way into a crowded club. I looked at the girl in her Wilma Flintstone caveman dress, the fake bone in her nose and her skin stained black with what appeared to be black shoe polish, and I wanted to punch her in the face. Since being out at Carnival, I had seen dozens of Spaniards, men and women, decked out in Aunt Jemima gear, colorful, colorful head rags, matching skirts, and oversized tits and asses. The costume was completed with that black shoe polish smeared all over their skin. 
What are they supposed to be? I demanded from Manuel, trying to decide if I should be outraged or scared. Were these people making fun of black women because they found us cute like bunny rabbits and wanted to see what it would feel like to be us? Or did they find us repulsive and by dressing up like an exaggerated mammy seek to show their dislike? Either way, I didn't feel comfortable in the streets of Cadiz that night. So by the time my boneheaded sister sought me out in a sisterly embrace, I'd had enough. Don't call me sister, I practically spat at this drunken reveler. Do I look like you? I demanded. The girl looked stricken and didn't say anything, so I said it again louder. Do I look like you? Do I have a bone in my nose? Does my skin look like tar? I am not your sister. My rage threatened to erupt into violence. I clenched my fingers together in a fist and got ready to punch her. I wanted to rip the bone right out of her nose. Manuel sensed I was near the edge and quickly steered me away from the girl and out of the club. Once we got outside, I took some deep breaths and tried to calm down, gain some perspective. Manuel took my hand, wisely not saying anything, and led me toward an outdoor churros and chocolate stand. If there's anything in Spain that can always cheer me up, it's fried sticks of dough rolled in sugar and dipped in thick, rich chocolate. Having lived in New York City for five years and away from Carnival for just as long, even Manuel saw this practice of dressing up black as a disturbing phenomenon. But he sheepishly admitted that it had always been one of the favorite and easiest costumes for Carnival. I didn't want to discuss it on the street, but I knew we'd get back to the conversation. In the meantime, I wanted to find something besides churros and chocolate that was pleasant about Carnival. So we followed the sound of live music and came across a band playing on a stage in one of the city's plazas. I didn't know if I should laugh or cry as we pushed our way toward the front of the stage and saw that the members of the all-male band were dressed as bodacious black mammies with colorful coordinated polka dot skirts. It was enough to make me laugh at the absurdity. Why? I screamed at the top of my lungs, trying to be heard over the music but to no avail. I totally felt like Lawrence Fishburne at the end of Spike Lee's movie School Days. Let's go home, Manuel said. This is why I could never live in your country, I said in response, wondering if people were looking at me and comparing me to the folks singing on the stage. Now I feared that maybe Spaniards did look at me and only see a stereotype. Manuel just grunted, probably afraid of what I might say. All I could say was an expression my maternal grandfather, Papa Willie, used regularly when dealing with the knuckleheads in this world. Ain't that some shit. <laughs> oh, you know, I just, I, okay, so I, so many things I want to say, which is, first of all, I can't, I'm, I feel terrible that you had to go through that. I just want to say oy vey, like over and over again. <laughs> and also, Manuel comes across just so lovely in your book. As to you, right? Like, I'm like, I want to hang out with these people and spend time with them. You really make it so familiar and so easy to be there in the scenes with you. You know, so it's, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I read a lot of memoirs. So, (laughs) you know, Um, yeah, I was just like, okay, these people are great. I want to know them. Um, Yeah, so that was, so that's, this makes, this scene that you write here makes even, more shocking, interesting, compelling that you now live in Spain. Like so much has changed for you. Yes. It's um my my agent was like, I think you need to write Kinky Gispacho too. <laughs> <laughs> um the follow up. Um yeah, I would have never thought I would have ended I mean, really, after experiences like that. I mean I was okay to visit, but I was not yearning to move and live here. But I'm so happy that I do now. Um yeah. it was a pandemic like spur of the moment kind of thing so mm-hmm. well so in terms of the larger cultural conversation beyond Spain you know the, the, what's been going on you know I want to say a lot of people who didn't understand what was at stake for black Americans um, for you know BIPOC bodies everyone has really learned so much more than they knew before and the work is ongoing but for you as a black writer a black woman a black american a mom of kids who are black and spanish how do you think the cultural conversation about race and privilege and access has changed recently and do you feel heartened by it yeah so i mean 2020 was like a banner year for all of us who have Mm. been talking about race for so long and, and trying to provoke some more meaningful conversations and and changes in our society. And so um, I feel like 2020 ushered in the opportunity to, at the very least, 
get people talking about things they had never before wanted to talk about or even were aware of. So I do think, I mean, all change has to begin with conversations. I don't really think that change happens with a law, right? Because if mm. you pass a law and nobody understands it, they're just going to, you know, rebel against it or something like that. So um, there's a quote in my book about colorism, same family, different colors, where I quote Ronald Reagan of all people. <laughs> but he said, all mm -hmm. change begins at the dining room table. And so I think because, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter, which I call Black Lives Matter 2.0 movement, you know, that was sparked mm -hmm. at the um, murder of George Floyd, we were all stuck in our houses. We were all stuck around the dining room table. And so people really did have to talk. Like they mm -hmm. really had to talk for the first time. Um, and so, like, I, I would be, I would be foolish to say, oh, we made significant progress. I don't think significant progress is the word, but I do think progress was made because even, you know, the, the, the terminology, you know, saying the words white supremacy, talking about uh, systemic racism, even being able to say like black people, brown mm -hmm. people <laughs> without mm -hmm. making people mm -hmm. uncomfortable. I mean, I literally wrote an article in 2017 about capitalizing the letter B in the word black. It was an op-ed in the New York Times. And people mm -hmm. got upset because I brought up the word black. Like, like people still wanted to fight me instead of saying African-American. And so I do think that we can have the conversations now. And that is, that is significant. So, so as a writer who deals with words, you know, whose, whose, whose contribution to our society is words, I am cautiously optimistic that by having the words and having the all, I mean, there were so many books that were published in 2020, 2021 and continue to be published, you know, that are by authors and writers of color. I think that we are getting more words, more ability to speak to one another, more opportunities for conversations, even if it's all around book clubs, right? I mean, even mm -hmm. if we're all just reading some of these great titles that are coming out, um, we're, we're getting somewhere. Um, Again, I just have to read the news and, you know, I get 100% depressed and feel like we're going mm -hmm. backwards instead of forwards, which in some ways we are. But I also think that the reason we're going backwards is because people are afraid of the progress that we are obviously making. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, like, if you feel, do you ever get a moment of thinking, wow, I, I never thought we'd even be here? No, I mean, actually, I feel like I can't believe we're here in the backwards way. Like, I feel like the government and the politicians and where the... Um, you know, the, I don't even like to call them Republicans because I feel like we've got a whole new party of people who just want to take away the rights of all progressives, you know, laws that have been made in the past 30, 40 years. Um, so, but again, I look at that as response to the progress that's made. I mean, that's always the case. You have progress and then you go backwards because people get afraid of the progress, right? You know, women get the right to vote and then we have to pass a law that says they can't, you know, go to work, you know, or we have to make something else difficult about their lives, right? Um, you know, reconstruction was followed by the creation of the Ku Klux Klan. There's always a response to progress. And so if you look at it from that kind of bird's eye view, then you can see that, I mean, personally, that's how I see it. But the being in the midst of it still feels awful because we are going backwards in a lot of ways and people are trying to take away the rights you know, of women, of people of color, of the LGBTQ community. Why? Because we're moving forward, right? So if you look at it that way, it's like, keep going, keep putting the pressure on, but we're losing people in the process too, right? I mean, people are literally leaving the country. You know, people are afraid. People are getting killed and hurt because, you know, people are responding with violence when it's like, um, you know, because they think, oh, these people, they're getting too uppity, right? And we're seeing it across groups, right? So I do also think, though, the positive is that but finally, like the one thing I think that is progress is the solidarity, right? Because, you know, like just for example, we see the Asian American community is being besieged by violence and racial violence, right? And that has caused, for the first time, like real outreach it's, I don't mean to say that Asians have not had solidarity with other groups, but more than ever, we're seeing, you know, solidarity between other groups supporting the Asian community and the Asian community supporting other groups because it's like, we have to do this together, right? We have to kind of fight this rising tide of, 
I don't even know what to call it. I call it fear mongering <laughs> uh, because it just kind of, I think it all comes from faith. And I think even, even people of color or people from the LGBTQ community, women, whatever your group is, right? Whatever your semi-oppressed group may have been, like everybody was still kind of working in silos though, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we all woke up because I feel like there was like the 2020 just made people realize, I think even just the pandemic made us realize that we're all interconnected, right? It's, it's nobody is going to be spared when bad things happen. So we really have to, like you said, open our eyes, pay attention and see what's really, what is happening and, and how we are all connected. There was like a moment there in the pen, like there was this tiny moment where I felt like <laughs> dating myself what was the we are the world we are, yeah like, yeah yeah I, I know right. I was there I was there right I was wearing the same clothes as you and I couldn't afford a Benetton sweater either like <laughs> I got it yeah but you know what I mean there was that moment where I think where we were all like we have got to help each other we have got to stop acting like you know these false barriers between us whether it's race gender whatever we've just got to work together uh because we're all going to get taken out by the same pandemic, right? Yeah. Like it's not, yes. it's not choosing you based on how cute you are, where your address is or whatever this might be. So yeah, like I do think, I, I do think there was progress. There has been progress, but I think again, whenever there's progress, you're going to have a equal and opposite, you know, rebuttal, if you will, that's going to mm. be nasty and painful, but hopefully the, prog the progress just keeps moving forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to, I know that I'm, I'm going over here, but I definitely want to ask you to just talk a moment about your podcast because it's coming back, right? Your podcast. Can you just talk about your podcast a little bit and then we'll, we'll do the rest and all that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I am really excited because I am kind of relaunching my podcast, which is going to be called Read, Write, and Create. And that podcast is going to launch on January 2nd, 2023. And it's the podcast where I will be providing a little bit of creative writing coaching every two weeks. So it's a bi-weekly podcast where I, I like to think of it as whispering, encouraging words to <laughs> BIPOC writers so that they can optimize their writing lives. And I'm always going to be using a little bit of history from our literary foremothers and forefathers as an extra jolt of inspiration. So whether I'm talking about Phyllis Wheatley, you know, continuing to write her poetry while she's working as a scullery maid, you know, in the 1600s. Mm -hmm. It's like, if she can do that, you can write 500 words today in your, <laughs> for your memoir, right? Or, you know, Ida B. Wells, who single-handedly brought attention to the lynching happening in the South by launching her own newspaper. Again, a woman, a black woman, starts her own newspaper, brings attention to this horrible um, situation in the South the, the written word, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a little 15 minute uh, coaching session from me um, that is really helping you with different uh, writing uh, principles or figuring out how to get your writing habits solidified. And again, with a little bit of um, inspiration from our literary form others. And it's called Read, Write, and Create. And it will be launching January 2nd, 2023. And it really is a... Um, it's going to be part of my whole new website called Read, Write, and Create. So it'll be the blog and the podcast, and that's where I'll be teaching my writing classes as well. So I am very, very exciting. Yes. Yeah, that's so – what great offerings, too. I mean, I could just I, – I mean, I've already written one memoir, but studying with you sounds like it would be really, really productive and affirming as well. I just think, like, you know, you've got a lot going for you as a writer and as a teacher. Well, thank you so much. And I actually, you know, it's taken me a minute because I think a lot of writers struggle with the idea of teaching writing because mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes we think that if we teach writing, we won't have time to do our own writing. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I struggled with that myself, even though I taught writing for the last 12 years in academia, but I just love teaching. I'm, I'm yes, a natural teacher. So it really fills me with joy. I call it my ministry is to mm. help other writers get their stories out of their head 
and onto the page and out into the world. Because what good is it doing in your head? Nothing. Yes, yes. And also I want to say this this speaks a little bit to what you were talking about before, which is like I like to think of uh, writing and producing and creating. Nothing is wasted, right? So writing is writing. You're always maybe working on an idea in your head. You're always kind of, you know, percolating something. And Yes, if you overload yourself with too many classes, you may not have time to create your own, but it's all going into the the blender. Like it's all going into the smoothie. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And that's what I realized also because I left my teaching job when I moved to Spain and I now have an office, like a home office and I can write, write, write. But I actually miss the input from, you know, interacting with my students. And so I find that teaching is very stimulating and I get lots of ideas and it also just again I'm a natural educator I want people to to succeed I want them to tell their stories and that again provokes me to you know keep doing what I'm doing as a writer as well it's just very not everybody is like that but I just feel I get excited I get a contact high (laughs) when I am helping other writers tell their stories so can you can you share a couple of your favorite memoirs that um, that have really helped you along the way or that you go back to? Absolutely. I actually wrote them down because I was like, oh, how right. am I going to actually be able to? Oh, there's so many. But I wrote yeah. uh, I wrote uh, four down. Five, sorry, five, because they each have different <laughs> um, reasonings. So one of my all time favorite memoirs is Mary Carr's The Liars Club. And mm-hmm. I love her story because I love the language. I could just like eat it it's so rich and funny she's southern she's from texas and the language in that book is so dense it's amazing and when i i remember reading that and thinking how could she have possibly remembered these conversations Mm -hmm. this dialogue because it's you know she captures her grandmother and her crazy mom it's fantastic if you want to study dialogue you want to see a well-written dialogue in a memoir check out the liars club James McBride's The Color of Water. I just mm, love it. Yeah, I read that one. Yeah, that's the story of this black man who discovers that his mother has been passing as a light-skinned black woman when, in fact, she was Jewish, and her family disowned her because she married a black man. So he's telling his own story and his mother's story simultaneously, and it's just a beautiful kind mm-hmm. of love letter to his mother. And then, so those are two books that I've read you know, years ago and always come back to, I use them in my classes and I just look at them. I read them when I'm looking for really good, well-written, rich description and detail. Mm -hmm. And then I just read recently Bernadine Evaristo's Manifesto, which is, she's a British writer and her memoir is all about how she managed to live a creative writing life, like how she managed to sustain herself as a creative writer. And she won the Man Booker Prize just Uh, two years ago but has been writing since she was like in her 20s and she's I think 60 now so Mm. it's a really awesome book if you're looking for inspiration to keep writing um and then I I feel really silly saying this but I just read Will Smith's I I mean it's technically like memoir autobiography it toes the line I mean I think it's like Mm. 600 pages and we all know he wrote it with a ghostwriter but is so good and the reason i'm mentioning it is because yes it's a celebrity memoir but it is written so well and it really you know we talk about memoir having theme as opposed to just an autobiography now will smith you want to know all the stories about the shows and the movies and all that but he starts that book off saying i am a coward that's the first sentence in the book and the rest of those 599 pages speak to why even in his celebrity status he was always underlying you know facing this demon of thinking of himself as a coward it was riveting and extremely well written and you are looking at this book as a reading about a flawed individual Mm -hmm. not a celebrity so Mm -hmm. if anybody wants to read a celebrity memoir but that's an actually really well written story that pulls you through with that idea of I am a coward that is a great one to read I I mm-hmm. never thought I bought it because it was in English and I was in a Spanish bookstore and I was like oh my god something in English I'll just take it you know <laughs> um but was pleasantly surprised at how well written it was and how deep it goes into his psyche um he, he does not come off as like this great person he comes off as a very conflicted person with 
anybody pays attention to pop culture, we know that he had that incident at the Oscars this year. Right, right. You will look at that incident so differently if you read this book. So those are my favorite memoirs of the moment. I could go on and list like eight. Right, more, I know. Isn't it hard? It's hard to pick. Those are good ones. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And then as we end, I know I've asked you so many questions about your process and your your outlook on writing and culture, but do you have any parting advice for memoirists working on their manuscripts? Absolutely. So the reason I actually am launching my um, podcast and my blog, Read, Write, and Create, is because I really believe that my memoirs are healing medicine. Personally, my life has been healed in some ways by different memoirs at different points in my life. And so what I tell my students and what I want more people to understand is that writing your memoir is not an act of indulgence. You're writing your memoir nine times out of 10 is going to help somebody, even if it's just one person. So look at this work you're doing, again, not as indulgence, but as serving a public that needs your Oh, boy, I love that. Thank you so much. Lori, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they listen to you? All that. Well, they can find my work and work with me, take my classes, get all of my free content at readwriteandcreate.com, readwriteandcreate.com, starting in uh, January 2023. Um, And they can follow me on Instagram at Lori L. Parks, and that's L-O-R-I, middle initial, L. T as in Tom, H-A-R, like Peter, S like Sam, Lori L. Thank you. Lori, it was so good to talk with you. I just, I just love the fact that we connected, and I'm so glad we had the chance to do this together. Thank you for being my guest. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I love memoir also, and I'm so excited that there's a whole podcast about memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.